This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We are coming to you from 2SER in Sydney, on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Marlene Even. It is election time, six weeks of federal election madness. Journalists are hiking along the election campaign, bringing us the updates from a plane landing to a politician stumbling, promises, policies, new ministers and everything in between. The media are finding creative ways to keep Australians engaged, while Australians are possibly seeking a shortcut to get a daily, digestible dose of politics rather than a tidal wave. In comes the innovative subgenre of election podcasts. Once a unique creation, it has become a staple for newsrooms. Guardian Australia has their podcast Election Catch-Up. Nine News launched On the Trail, Election 22. Then there's Crikey's Election Cast, The Conversations Below the Line, and Spotify Exclusive, Left Right Out. They're just a few examples of the many election podcasts. So why is the subgenre becoming a staple in election media coverage? And what role do they play in informing voters? To discuss this and more, we are joined by Andrea Carson, political scientist at La Trobe University, previously a producer for The 7.30 Report, and former journalist for The Age, ABC and 3RRR. Mark Kenny, professor at the Australian National University, host of the podcast Democracy Sausage, director of the National Press Club, former chief political correspondent and national affairs editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and The Canberra Times. Welcome both of you to Fourth Estate. Thank you very much, Marlene. Thank you. Nice to be here. Now, before we start chatting today about election podcasts, I do want to briefly touch on two things that have popped up in the election coverage. Now, the first being the whole media drinks with the Prime Minister situation. So a bit of background. Earlier this week, a man confronted the Prime Minister at a private media drinks event. Now, a party leader hosting drinks for the media is a common practice during elections, but 
maybe not so well known outside of the fourth estate. So this practice was thrown into the spotlight and there was criticism that it was a breach of media ethics while others stated it's a work event and part of networking. So I'd be interested to know what your view on this whole debate is. Mark, I'll go to you first. Thanks, Marlene. Well, I guess I, I, I suppose I have some reservations about being too definitive on this, uh, partly because I was for a very long time in the press gallery and party to a, a number of the things that I guess we're going to be talking about today. Um, and, and I think, therefore, I'm, I'm open to the criticism or I'm about to be open to the criticism that uh, I was happy enough to do it when I was there and, uh, and perhaps uh, uh, taking a, a loftier, more moral view now that, uh, that I'm not. But um, I do understand the, uh, the, the public concern about this. I do understand a growing sense of uh, uh, perhaps um, disappointment, really, in what appears to be the, the kind of symbiotic relationship between media, the press gallery in particular, and the political uh, the political class or the elected uh, representatives. Uh, part of this, I think, is necessary. Uh, it is true to say that this is a work event. Uh, journalists go along to drinks that are being put on by the prime minister or perhaps the opposition leader, and it's all off the record. And uh, yes, you know, someone looking from outside will say, "Oh, it's all a bit cosy, isn't it?" And I think that is a, a criticism that journalists leave themselves open to. That said, I think you could also say that it's. Um, it's a way of uh, perhaps getting some extra context in terms of what's going on, uh, building up a picture of the, the particular leader uh, in an off-the-record situation where they can be a bit more candid, perhaps explain the background circumstances to a particular development or policy or what it is that their overall plan is trying to do. And if you're a, an analyst like me, a commentator, uh, some of that stuff can be really valuable and, uh, and, and can really enrich your copy. But uh, you do need to be careful about it. And I do understand why people, uh, you know, consumers of media are a little bit concerned at, at this um, because uh, sometimes it does look a little bit too close, like a club. Andrea, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think Mark's spot on. Uh, there's a perception uh, that ne- that the media needs to be careful of a public perception that the media is captive to the politicians. Uh, as Mark has explained, this is something that has happened for a long time. It doesn't mean that the media necessarily are captive to the politicians, but it does open up the accusation of that. Um, the press gallery are usually a fairly robust bunch that uh, talk to both sides all the time and they're not going to be swayed by a drink here or there, um, and it does give them very good access. But um, we have seen examples in the past where politicians and journalists have become too close to each other. The perfect example of that probably is David Cameron's government in um, the UK with News of the World, which led to the Leveson inquiry and an admission that they got too close to each other. So it's that perception that um, is in the spotlight here at the moment. Yeah, and I think it's true to say that uh, there are journalists who are closer to the government here as well, Uh, perhaps some of them in the same uh, company that News of the World was uh, in at the time. Um, And so, you know, not all journalists are the same. Uh, So you could go to to drinks with with Albanese, for example, and then the next morning uh, front up at the press conference and and hit him with uh, what's the unemployment rate? You know, now 
people will have concerns about that as well, perhaps in the other direction of, of journalists being inconsiderate and too aggressive and too inclined to corner the, pop, the politician in question. Um, and Andrea is right. I mean, a few, a few drinks here and there aren't, aren't necessarily going to sway journalists, but um, they're not all the same. And some of them are, uh, some of them are a bit further into the tent than others, let's say. And I do want to jump into that question that was posed to Albanese about the unemployment rate. It's been labelled as, I suppose, kind of gotcha questions, uh, whether it's that or asking the PM what the price of milk is. What role do these gotcha questions have in an election campaign? Yeah, so I probably see this a little bit differently to some others. I don't really see that one so much as a gotcha question. And the reason I have that view is because of... uh, concept called issue ownership, which is the perception of um, issues that the public thinks political parties handle best. In Australia, now this doesn't mean it's reality, it is a perception, but typically the public tend to think that the coalition are much better at managing the economy and national security. We've seen this in many, many opinion polls over time. And Labor's usually credited with being better at managing health and education. And the problem for Anthony Albanese when he was asked that question is the coalition had already started its messaging that it was really trying to speak to that issue ownership of the economy and was running a line which was stay the course. Uh, Don't change leaders now, stay the course, stay the party, we're better at managing the economy. Anthony Albanese played perfectly into the coalition's narrative there by not knowing one of the key markers when he was asked to recall it, which means two things happen. One is that uh, it reaffirms what the coalition's trying to tell the public, but the other thing is it means that Anthony Albanese's not able to move the conversation onto educational health or all the other topics he wants to speak about because then he gets all the follow-up questions about why didn't you know, do you know this? this figure, do you know that? And it brings it back to the central issue of economic management, which is not where he wants to be right now, looking on the on the negative side of that. Yeah, I think that's a very, uh, very, you know, cogent and uh, uh, complete summary, really, of, of the situation. I, I agree with uh, the way you framed it up there, Andrea. Um, I'd probably just add, uh, not, not contesting any of that, uh, add uh, the, the point that, um, you know, Morrison's attack on Albanese has been quite specific in recent days in that economic sphere. You know, he's argued that Albanese, they've been arguing this for a while, that Albanese is trying to sneak into office without being too detailed. You don't know enough about him. He doesn't have the experience. He particularly doesn't have economic management experience. They say he's never held an economic portfolio. By that, they mean He's not been treasurer or finance minister or indeed prime minister before, uh, and you'd be putting him in charge of the economy if you make him prime minister. Therefore, he's an unknown quantity. These are uncertain times. This is what the prime minister is trying to sort of leverage here, the uncertainty in the global environment. Uh, Interest rates are about to go up. Yes, unemployment is very low, and the government's wanting to take the credit for this sort of, you know, ebullient, almost bulletproof economy. But at the same time, it's wanting to say there are a number of threats out there, and do you really want to go from a competent government that's got us to this position to one that uh, could be a bit flighty? They might not be across all the details. So a thing like unemployment, I agree with Andrea's uh, point also that that's not really a gotcha question. Um, it, it, it ended up, it wouldn't have been, for example, if he'd answered it. Um, 
it might look more like a gotcha question by virtue of not being able to answer. And it was kind of puzzling that, uh, you know, given that it's been so central to the narrative, it was really the key thing to come out of the budget, a 4% unemployment rate uh, heading to 3.75 in the budget papers this year. Uh, so it was a bit surprising that uh, Albanese had that brain freeze. Uh, and I'll, I'll probably uh, conclude on this point because we don't know how damaging it will be in the longer run, but it's certainly, you know, hobbled the, the the Labor narrative and put some uh, effervescence on the on the Conservative side, which had a terrible run up to the election being called, of course, Morrison had a horror run. Um, so we don't know the long term effects of it. So I'll conclude on this point, you wouldn't want it to happen in the last week of an election campaign. And probably the second worst time would be the first day of an election campaign. Andrea, you created an election podcast with Below the Line with the Conversation and La Trobe University. Can you tell us about what the aim of the podcast is? So Below the Line is to give the public insights into the federal election campaign and doing it from a different perspective to how they might be getting insights through the mainstream media. We wanted to bring academics who have election politics and campaigning expertise together in one place, but make it really accessible, which is why we've also looped in John Fain, who is a very seasoned award-winning broadcaster, formerly with the ABC, and, and do it in a way that's really accessible for audiences, which is why the conversation is a natural vehicle for us. It takes academic content and applies journalese to it in the written form. And we're trying to do something similar here in the form of audio by bringing together the experts, but translating um, what we see from an academic perspective into uh, hopefully information that has broad public appeal um, just during this election campaign. It is a pop-up podcast. And we hope that um, we're able to give audiences something that they want. So far, we've been thrilled that we've made it into the top 20 podcasts in Australian um, news podcasts with just two episodes. We've now got a third one out. So um, please come and have a listen. We're around right up until polling day on the 21st of May. Mark, as the host of Democracy Sausage podcast, could you tell us about the aim of the podcast? And then I'm interested to hear about how you've seen the demand of election podcasts change over time. Yeah, thanks, Marlene. It's a really interesting one, uh, Democracy Sausage, in terms of what it is. And it's it's been quite successful. But um, I'm glad to be asked about the kind of um, thinking behind getting it going in the first place, because it's... Um, it's really important to its sort of overall architecture. That logic was really that I'd spent best part of two decades in the press gallery on one side of Lake Burley Griffin and doing a lot of political commentary and uh, political reporting and being part of that, uh, that press gallery process. And then I moved across Lake Burley Griffin in line of sight of Parliament House to ANU, where there is a fantastic school of politics and international relations. There are world-class historians and economists and so forth. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be good to alchemize these two things, to get some of these great analysts of, of, of contemporary politics uh, sort of talking with some theorists and some political scientists and some historians, you know, to, to effectively bring uh, the, the fourth estate and the academy together in this, in this podcast, in this conversation, so they can kind of mutually enrich. And broadly speaking, that is what the philosophy has been, uh, so I've had a number of, you know, very senior journalists, uh, very prominent names, and of course they haven't hurt in terms of uh, 
driving up the profile of the podcast. Um, but also just some fantastic scholars, mostly from ANU, but certainly not exclusively, uh, from, from many other institutions as well. And, um, and overall, that's been um, a really, really successful partnering, I guess, although it has faced some challenges. I've sort of learned some things about, I suppose, the difference between those of us that, like myself, who, whose sort of expertise was what's happening right now this minute uh, in politics, as distinct from uh, people who are specialists in aspects of the political system or periods of history or general, uh, you know, a particular set of political philosophies or whatever it might be. So yeah, some of those things have been um, a challenge to alchemize at times, but I think it's uh, really worked well overall. And in terms of the subgenre of election podcasts, because I, I suppose it is a different genre from just political podcasts in itself, how have you seen the change in them rising up? It, it went from being a unique podcast that would happen to now being quite a staple where every single media outlet seems to have one. Yeah, that's right. Well, it, and it's it's kind of, um, uh, yeah, to the point where there isn't really time to listen to all of these things. And of course, for the most part, they're covering the same game, as we like to say. And so uh, you have to find new and creative ways to, to um, convey what's happening and to deconstruct it and so forth. Um, but they are they are interesting, and this is what the technology now allows, I think. And so you've got uh, journalists in particular in these organisations who uh, will uh, perhaps they are um, turning out a, a, a television program, or their their TV reporters, or or their print reporters who uh, you know have some considerable demands on them, but they don't get that chance to to um, use so much of the knowledge that they gain and the thoughts that they have on a given day. Uh, in whatever story it is, and the technology allow, allows uh, their employer to, um, you know, relatively economically set up the infrastructure, you know, buy the equipment and so forth, to um, to, to use that extra information to really enrich the coverage. And for consumers of media, this means that they can not only read those stories, but then they can then hear some background to them, and uh, they can hear about life on the campaign. I mean, we started this. Uh, discussion talking about you know drinks with the PM. There are conventions and things that happen on the road in election campaigns or just in the normal course of being cohabitant with uh, elected politicians in Parliament House that members of the public didn't used to know that perhaps now they do as a result of this much more um, uh, extensive dialogue uh, between uh, readers or listeners and, uh, and and people doing the covering of it. Yeah, and it's interesting to have that insight, not only from experts, but, you know, journalists who are doing the work. Andrea, what do you think has led to the popularity of this subgenre? Well, I guess um, podcasting has been popular for a while and it's something that you can, as an audience member, you can multi-skill. You can go for a jog and listen to a podcast. You can listen in the car. Uh, it's a very convenient way to get um, information and to get in a timely manner um, on call when it's convenient for you as an audience member. 
From my own point of view, um, there's both professional and personal reasons why I was really attracted to this genre. Obviously, I've got uh, a history in working in radio. I love radio. It's such an intimate medium. You can you speak directly to the audience and you can get across all the big topics of the day in radio. Having been a print journalist for a really long time um, before that, the big story of the day can soon become what's known as um you know, shrunken right down to just being a brief when it gets taken over by another big story. That doesn't tend to happen in radio. So um, I love the medium of it. But the other thing, it's very similar to what Mark is saying. It's marrying together people whose professional expertise is elections. And now that I'm uh, moved into academia and am a political scientist, there's nothing I love more than an election campaign. And so it seemed like a natural thing to do to team up with other political scientists, Annika Goya from the University of Sydney and Simon Jackman from the also the University of Sydney, who each have expertise in elections. Annika's an expert on parties, Simon's an expert on polls and data. And then um, bringing the band back together, I was the producer for John Fain and he's no longer working at ABC after 30 years at the ABC. He's a professorial fellow at Melbourne University. He has that expertise to be able to host a podcast and it just seemed like um, the perfect combination. Unlike Mark, our podcast is not a permanent feature of the landscape. I love Democracy Sausage and it's won lots of awards for good reason. Ours is a pop-up podcast. We're here just for the election campaign. We're going in, we're going hard, and then we'll disappear again. We want to bring different insights and, and change the way the agenda, um, the media agenda plays out during an election campaign. Look at those issues and perhaps events that don't get as much attention or should get a little more attention than they do. And I know you'll probably both be quite biased in this question, but is there too much election coverage? I mean, how much can people possibly consume? Is there enough diversity in the approach to election coverage? Well, look, I'll lead off on that. Uh, probably the answer is yes, I guess, if, if, if we're honest. I mean, there's, uh, there's, there's certainly a lot of it and it's grown. Um, I would say the same thing about budgets, incidentally. I mean, I've been in sort of budget lockups uh, for, you know, for many, many years, decades. And um, and, you know, this, when you think about it, you know, the amount of uh, resources that newspapers in particular put into them and they turn out these great 16-page, um, you know, coverage and there's in every single portfolio is covered in detail and the budget itself and, you know, the, the um, economic analysis and all that. And I've always thought, who's reading all this, you know? Uh, I suspect no one almost is reading all of it. Um, and no one is reading all of the election coverage, really, except for perhaps the real kind of, uh, you know, those deeply engaged in it and um, and uh, people have literally got nothing else to do, I suppose. I mean, it is it is it is interesting, but there's a lot of it. And and then you add, layer in all these 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 new media things, podcasts, as well as, uh, you know, the multiple spectrums that uh, the channels that uh, TV uh, now have. I mean, I did a program the other night on, on TV and, and it was for a program I've never heard of and. Couldn't find it on the um, couldn't find it on the TV anyway. Uh, I don't know where it went. Um, so uh, you know, there's there's a lot happening, and yeah, I, I guess some of it's the same. But there's 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 uh, there's richness in diversity. I think we can say you, you'd agree with that, surely, Andrea. Absolutely, I would. I'm never going to argue against pluralism and diversity. 
uh, more information so that people can get a range of ideas to make up their own opinions on things, I think is really valuable. Uh, and let's keep in mind that Australia actually has a pretty small uh, and concentrated media market compared to other liberal democracies, that in terms of traditional media, it has highly concentrated ownership. Yes, we do have access to other forms of media um, thanks to the digital age, but many of those are um, speaking to a national or international audience. Uh, in Mark's case and mine, we're speaking to a very um, specific topic, and I think that's um a good thing for audiences to have some choice and diversity in where they get their information from. I do want to hop into the question about horse race journalism, which is a term that refers to journalists focusing on who is winning or losing uh, the election more than the policies. Now, who's going to win the election is a very important question, but is there a line where it becomes detrimental to focus too much on? Uh, look, I think there is. I think it's obviously it's quite reductive for a start. Um, secondly, it's not, it's it's purporting to be fact when it isn't fact. Uh, you can't know the outcome of the election before you've had it. Um, there are ways of, of, of getting indicators and some of those are more reliable than others. And even the ones that we think are reliable might turn out to be unreliable, either because the measurements are wrong um, or because they're, they're not predictive anyway, uh, so they may they may represent a, a snapshot that's broadly accurate of a time, uh, and a matter of days later, perhaps even hours later, depending on the nature of a, of, of a given event. Let's not forget election campaigns are, are very event-rich uh, periods. Uh, there's a lot going on, a um, lot of noise, a lot of junk information, uh, claim and counterclaim, stunt and, and counter-stunt. But um, uh, you know things can change, so it's it's a dynamic environment, and reducing it to uh, a sort of a who's winning, who's losing, uh, is it's sort of tempting, and you can see why some people do it, but it doesn't really get you very far. And as I say, I think it's quite disrespectful to the importance of elections. You know, the 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 issues that are in play, the policies that are being put forward that need to be properly uh, dissected, uh, explained defended by by the proponents of those policy ideas against uh, you know questioning or, or, or criticism these things are important and um, if we just sort of reduce the election to talk about the presidential aspect creeping into Australian politics and or, or storming into it might be a better way of putting it and this kind of thing is you know attendant with that I think so you've got kind of elections that sort of reduce to a race between Albanese and Morrison and and then and then that's reduced even further to being effectively ones up or ones and ones down, and and you know game over. It's all it's all sort of explained, and that's that's not very useful. As Andrew said, you know we're a sophisticated democracy, and um, that's a good thing. We've got 17.1 million people on the roll this time, I think. A few more to get registered in the next few days. Uh, that's a lot of people, a lot of votes, and uh, they haven't been cast yet. Well, I agree with Mark completely. I think that horse race. Reporting is reductive. I actually think it's quite problematic. Uh, we just have to look at the results of the 2019 election to see why it's so problematic. Uh, there was a systematic fail with the opinion polls during that election that overestimated the progressive vote and underestimated the conservative vote. The outcome was that against expectations, the coalition won that election. 
and yet the media coverage did not um, give us that picture as an audience because it was so closely following the polls and following who was ahead um, and reporting um, in accurately reporting that the polls were showing that it was Labor who was ahead when, in fact, it wasn't. The other thing is that Australians don't tend to vote, believe it or not, um, for leaders. They still largely vote along party lines. And yet the coverage when it does the horse race, it really, as Mark said, focuses on leaders in that presidential style, which is very much a hallmark of US media reporting and US politics, isn't reflective of Australian politics, despite the fact that we do have our leaders out and about and doing things. um, And some of that is going to be captured. But Australians still are voting according to who their local member is and their um, political party of choice by and large. You mentioned in in the recent podcast episode of Below the Line that it's hard for the media to get a sense of the holisticness of what's going on in digital media as it's so fragmented, spread across Instagram, TikTok, uh, Facebook, etc. And it can be hard to get a sense of who's winning or losing. Could you expand what, what you meant by that? Well, in the digital age, media audiences are highly fragmented as are voters, that we're consuming information from different places. Um, Many people are getting their information online and many are getting their information from social media sites such as Facebook and TikTok and Instagram and all those that you've mentioned. And political operatives, whether it's parties or candidates, they know this. So in putting out their political messages, they're going to where the voters are, where the people are, and that's on digital media, on social media. Um, And some do all these uh, mediums. They service slightly different demographics and audiences. So as you would know, Instagram's more likely to be the under 35s, Facebook, um, an older audience. Uh, And then you've got encrypted platforms like WhatsApp where we really just can't see what's going on with peer-to-peer sharing of information. So to try and have a holistic idea of what's going on in that digital media space is very hard to do to be able to collect all that data and um, bring it together in one place. And also some candidates and parties do much better in one space than they do in another. Those that are most effective at doing this are able to customise their messages according to the platform. So they don't do a cut and paste of their Facebook post and just put it onto Twitter. They will understand intimately who the Twitter audience is. They will understand who the Facebook audience is and they'll carve out their message accordingly. And in 2019, something that was lost, I think, in some of the mainstream media coverage was that the Coalition and Scott Morrison did a really reasonable job on digital media. Scott Morrison understood the importance of videos. They posted a lot more videos in the campaign than Labor did. Those videos got shared by Australians and by voters uh, and they were able to get a much bigger footprint in the digital space than Labor was. And I think, you know, that was part of um, the instrumentality of their success. So it's an important place to watch, but it's very hard to watch it as it's unfolding. Andrea, how can the media continue to engage Australians for the entire six weeks of the campaign? It, It is a long time. Can election podcasts be a way to hook audiences in as a small bite-sized piece throughout the day-to-day daily coverage? 
So I think media coverage of election campaigns is a bit like a three-course meal. You've got your main meal, which is probably your daily news bulletins um, coming out of television or radio or newspapers. You have an entree and you have some dessert where you get something a little bit special. The podcast, I think, is um, depending whether you like savoury or sweet, it's probably in the entree or the dessert space. Um, and that, that's what we're trying to do. We're not doing everything to be all things to all people. We're really trying to pull out what we think are some of the important events and phenomenon that occur during election campaigns. And uh, we think that Australians and listeners benefit from um, sampling lots of different sources during the course of the campaign. And we hope that we're part of uh the meal, uh, that three-course meal that people are consuming as they head towards making up their own minds about who they want to vote for. That's a wonderful way to put it, a delicious dessert to go (laughs) with a big, meaty, main meal throughout the six weeks. Thank you both for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much, Marlene, and thanks very much, uh, Dr Carsten. It's been great to see you again and um, all the best. On that note, I'd like to thank Andrea Carson and Mark Kenny for being on Fourth Estate. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to our executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for listening. <laughs>